Latter-day Contemplation is a podcast hosted by two Latter-day Saints who have found great value in experiencing God through walking a path of contemplation. The views expressed herein are our own. Hello and welcome to Latter-day Contemplation. We are your hosts, Riley Risto and Christopher Hurtado. Latter-day Contemplation started as an exploration of contemplative practices from many traditions to enhance our discipleship of Jesus Christ. We are by no means experts in the topics we discuss. But what we have is an openness to questions, a hunger to discover truth wherever we can find it, and a desire to share in the transformative life of inner peace. We love that you've joined us, and we hope that you find value in this community. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Christopher Hurtado. And I'm Riley Risto. And we're coming to you live from... He, well, we're not live. This is recorded, but they, we they are won't sitting hear here. It live. <laughs> That's right. We're sitting here together. This is really exciting. We're sitting across the desk from each other at Riley's office in Heber, Utah, global headquarters for Latter Day Contemplation. Yes, yes. This is the first ever uh, joint recording on a single mic at the Global HQ here in Heber, Utah. That's right. That's and exciting. we had a great lunch together, and we're excited to talk to you about Section Seventy Six. I recorded a Latter Day Contemplation. Excuse me. A Latter-day Peace Studies presents Come Follow Me podcast with Ben Peterson on Section 76. And after that thought, we should record something on Section 76, you and I, Riley, and read it as as an ascension text. That was my idea, to read it as an ascension text. And you love the idea. I do love it. I mean, to me, this is the way I read almost all scriptures, is I, I try to see patterns that are in them. I, I, I like to try to make them relevant for me in my present moment. And one of my favorite sections of scripture, especially Latter-day Revealed Scripture, has been for a long time, the vision, which is what DNC 76 is referred to as. And why is it called that? And, you know, you can relate to that if you're someone who's of a contemplative mindset, because people who really put a lot of stock in their in their visions and dreams and, and their uh, experiences really connect with DNC 76. And it's such an interesting section of scripture. It It is very long uh, comparably to the other sections of scripture. It goes over a ton of material and gives you a wide sweeping um, view of, of the gospel plan. It's got at the very bottom, it's got, you know, eternal damnation, which what it's what we refer to as outer darkness. And then at the top, it's got celestial kingdom with everlasting glory and eternal lives and, it, and everything in between. Yeah. And so it, it kind of covers the full gamut. And to get that all in one vision, it, it almost puts you in the shoes of the revelators. In this case, it's Joseph Smith, and he's, yeah, he's together with uh, Oliver, or, or excuse me, Signey Rigdon, uh, after studying some other scriptures, which we're going to get into, and they were put in in the spirit of the moment. And that's when 76 was revealed to them. So I, I just think the way it was revealed and the scope of it is is really interesting. And I thought it was a great idea to treat it, as you said, like an ascension text and something to really put yourself in that vision and see yes. how it applies to you. Very well put. Yeah. So I thought Looking at this text on its own, yes, we talk about the sons of perdition as those of outer darkness, but that's not that that doesn't show up yet, not at this point in the Doctrine and Covenants. So that's one example of where when I look at the text on its own, without explaining it from anything else that I have before or after, just looking at section 76, I see a familiar pattern. I see this pattern of the Ascension text where we start with the catabasis, the going down, and it takes us all the way down into the depths of perdition, and then it goes back up, and it goes degree by degree to the highest. Now, when I say it goes degree by degree to the highest, there's this question, there's this debate about whether there's progression from kingdom to kingdom, and that debate is open. It has not been settled. We're going to say, yes, there is, and we're going to read it that way, and we're going to see where it takes us. Yeah, and the reason for doing that, at least for me, is because we're really going to be reading this and explaining our own insights as if they're present for us today. We're not talking about some future moment, you know, a thousand or a hundred or 10,000 years ago or uh, in the future. 
where the global resurrection takes place and the global judgment takes place and we're all assigned a different kingdom and whether there's progression between those kingdoms or not is sort of irrelevant to this conversation. We're going to talk about what this vision means for us in the present moment and how we can apply it to our lives today as an ascension text, maybe as an ascension text that is a handbook for, for ascending in the yeah. present moment. Yeah, so we, we start naturally by going down. And this is the part that's, that's perhaps easiest, easiest for us to relate to. I always say, you know, Riley, I've been, I've been to hell. At least I've stood on the outskirts of it and I've looked into it. So I've been to Jerusalem. East of Jerusalem, there's this valley called Gehenna. And it's the place where the ancient Israelites burnt their garbage. And, and so there was fire. There were always fire burning there. There was always fire burning there. Smoke and terrible smells. Yes. And, yeah. Oh, and the smell, of course. And then you have dogs fighting over scraps. And so there's gnashing of teeth. Well, when I went there in 2008, they weren't burning garbage there anymore. That's actually beautiful now. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so it doesn't look like that anymore. So that was probably a great image of what's meant by hell at the time that it was written in the Bible. But for me now, what I understand, and what I think you can understand, I think all of us can understand, is this idea of being in hell that's a not a place. So same with the degrees of glory in this conversation. We're going to take this not metaphysically, as metaphysical places, but as states, states of our own soul, um, our own experience, so something more epistemological. So I've been in hell. I know what that's like. And there's suffering. And there's weeping and wailing. I forgot about the weeping and wailing mm -hmm. part. I've been through that. And yet, when I saw things differently, if I looked at it another way, if I repented, then I could be out of hell. And I didn't have to suffer anymore. There might still be pain, but not suffering. Yeah, so for you, it, the operative uh, aspect of of hell and repentance and coming out of it was was real for you in that moment. It wasn't something that was a place that you were assigned to or that you a physical physical place you were in at a moment. It really represented a state of being or consciousness or a state of your soul at a moment, uh, and it was purely circumstantial. If your circumstances were bad, you were in hell. If your circumstances are good, you're in some form of heaven or degree of glory. And so that's kind of what you're describing, right? That's right. Yeah, so that uh, state of being in hell, again, is the one that we most easily identify with. Let's talk about what it would be like to be in, in any one of these degrees of glory and maybe go up through the degrees of glory. I don't know how systematic we want to be, but let's talk about some of these other states that are possible. Okay, let's start at, start at the beginning a little bit. What prompted Joseph Smith and Sidney Rigdon to receive this vision and record it was their study of John chapter 5. And they, they specifically mentioned verse 29, but the, the, the verses just before that are really important to get into as well. So I'm going to read some of these because I think there's some great things that come out of this, especially when you read it and you relate it to your own situation in the now. So the, the verses he's referencing, they begin in 24, and it says, Verily, verily, or this is really true, you know, of a truth, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation. Now, condemnation can be a reference to hell, but is passed from death unto life. So death and life even in this, the spoken word here of Jesus, is that those are states of being. Death, in this sense, is not referred to as being that permanent end. Death is a state of being for someone who is under the condemnation of not hearing the word, not believing in God. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they shall, and, and they that hear shall live. Another great verse. This one's the key for me in my understanding of this. The dead shall hear. Well, dead bodies don't hear. That's not a sense they possess. They're under the ground and they're done. But the dead being referenced here are really the walking dead. These are people who are in a state of hell, as we described earlier. And they aren't hearing. But if they do hear, then they live. 
Okay, so again, it says, they that hear shall live. So the, capa the capability is there to hear. And if they give into that, if they accede to their hearing of this good word, then they shall live. For as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself. And this is the goal for us as well, to have life in ourself. Well, how do you do that? Here comes the ascension. And hath given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the Son of Man. Judgment being perfect understanding. Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in the which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice. Again, in the graves. You're not hearing anything in the grave. Your spirit will, and your spirit's with you now. So put yourself in the figurative grave. You're in death. You're in hell. You're in Gehenna. You're in that place of physical, mental, emotional suffering that comes with a wrong way of living, whatever that is. Or a wrong way of seeing things. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. An imperfect understanding, a veil or a cover being placed over you. To go Truth back being a obscured. Bit. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, to go back a little bit to verse 24, because you say, by the time we get to 20, what was it, 28, you have mm -hmm. hearing in graves. Oh, in 29, that... L let me read 29 real quick. And shall come forth, they that have done good under the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil under the resurrection of damnation. Right, so it looks like in verse 24 that if you hear the word you will at some future date, when I say it looks like it, that's not what it says in the text. But I think the way it's read usually is, if you hear the word in the future, you will be, you will become alive. You will yeah. be resurrected. What you're saying, Riley, is something like, this is happening when you hear the word, yeah, not you, later. Yeah, it, you have that phase change from death to life upon yeah. hearing and believing. Which doesn't mean that there can't be a later time when something else happens. We're talking about what this means for us here and now. And so when we get down to verse 29 or so, now you're going to say, okay, yes, maybe something like that happens later. The point is, what happens now? What happens now if we're, if we're in a state that is like unto death? And I know we're going to go into this because we want to give an example of what it means to be alive. And, and we've experienced that too. We've experienced both being in hell and in some sense being in heaven on earth. Our theology very much allows for the idea of heaven on earth. So a lot of the, the latest religious philosophy within our own church is pointing to the resurrection as being something operative for us on a daily basis. The same way that in the past we've talked about baptism as being a daily occurrence for us. Baptism and repentance, that preparatory gospel allows you to be reborn into a new phase, a new state of being. And I want to treat resurrection the same way. I'm not saying there isn't a global resurrection sometime out there in the future, however many years hence. All I'm saying is there's also this resurrection daily. And so in 29 when it says, And shall come forth they that have done good unto the resurrection of life, it's talking about life, for me anyway, it's talking about life right now being alive right now, experiencing the reality, the present reality of true life, objectively. So if this is getting a little obscure, I guess my point is this. When, when you run into that kind of person who is, you can tell there's a dark cloud over them. And you can call that a, a veil of sadness or something like that, right? Whatever you want to call it. That person is spiritually dead. They're, they're, they're in that depressed mood. In fact, some of the language that's used in DNC 76 is exactly the same as was used in Jonah to describe when Jonah fell off the ship, sank to the bottom of the ocean, and it says his head was encompassed about by weeds or by reeds. I can't remember the, the exact wording. But to me, that was a description of that deep, dark depression you feel when you're not sure God is with you. And when someone chooses to hear and respond to the, to the call or the word of God, to hear him, hear him and hear his voice, it enlivens them. It brings them out of that depth of hell or darkness into a state of life. And that's a resurrection. That's what I call hope in Christ. It's that hope in Christ that can bring you out of that state into a higher state. 
And so that it's that ascension from a lower state into a higher state that we want to discuss because for us, that's the relevant aspect of the resurrection. That's the relevant as aspect of these glories, these kingdoms of glories. It's not what's going to happen thousands of years from now. It's what we can do to enjoy those glories today. Right. There's nothing keeping us from celestial experience today. In fact, to be ready for, even within the very literal orthodox reading of our theology, to be ready for a celestial glory, you have to be living a celestial glory today. That's right. Right? That's a good I mean, point. Isn't that what Zion's all about? That's is the idea. Phase changes in earth, in the moment today, moving from telestial to terrestrial to celestial now. And then it's after you're used to living it, then it's easier to move right into it as your permanent home. Yeah, we have to see that we have to catch the vision that was Jesus's promise, which is a new everything, a new way of seeing everything. And that's possible here and now. It's not all about the next life. That's that will take care of itself. What's the scripture that says, you know, the evil of the day is sufficient for the day. You know, mm -hmm. let's stay sufficient here. To the day is the evil thereof. Right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Sermon let's, on the Mount. Exactly. Oh, good. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Our favorite. Yeah. yeah. So it, it's it's here and now that we're talking about. And you may be in hell here and now. And we want to show you the possibility that we see in this text of coming out of that state into a higher state, a state of telestial, terrestrial, even celestial glory. And the impetus for getting on that path is hearing him. It's interesting that that overlaps with kind of the church's big, I don't know if you want to call it a marketing push, but their messaging campaign, let's put it that way, yeah. is the hashtag hear him and how do you hear him and all that stuff. I love that because it's giving people the opportunity to think about new ways of hearing him. And then not just hearing, but believing and responding. So it's a life change. It's something that causes you to move into action. And it's, it's an expression of your agency at that point. And if the greatest gift is, is that moral agency that God has given us, the, the best way to respond to our inputs, our external inputs, is to do so after having heard him. Because then we're, we're responding and exercising our agency according to those words, according to that communication from the divine. So I, I like that that's the entry point, is to hear him. And, and of course, hearing him is... A, it could be a proxy for any of the senses. It could be feeling him. It could be seeing him. It could be whatever, you know. Experiencing, experiencing. him. Experiencing. Yeah. And sometimes it's not surprising to me that, that the beginning of the ascent is a descent. Because oftentimes, because we're heedless as humans, we don't hear him until things are bad, right? It, that just gets our attention. We start to listen. Okay, things are really bad. Where have I gone wrong? You don't even realize sometimes that you're in this state. How did I get here? I'm just seeing things wrong. And then you hear the truth, the truth that Jesus speaks to you, and you hear it, and you see things differently, and you come out of that state. Well, I like that. We've talked in the past about the Beatitudes as an ascension model as well. And the first step is the emptying, the poverty of spirit. Someone who is poor in spirit, they're in the depths of hell. They don't have the spirit with them. There's that dark cloud that pushes in upon them. And they are spiritually dead. And they feel it. There's a poverty there. They're and, at least not aware. If, if God has abandoned them, But they're open them, to they awareness. Yes. They're in that space where because of their situation, yes. they're completely open to improvement, to coming out of hell. And they'll, they're willing to do whatever it takes to do that. Well, what's the next step? That's where they can begin to hear yeah. and to see. And it's to feel. in the morning that they're comforted. In that moment, Jesus said, he said he would send another comforter, and he certainly does. So he sends that comforter. And when we receive that comforter, we're receiving it in meekness. Because we've, we've already hit the depths and we're like, I don't want to go back there. You've sent me this comforter, so by God, I'm going to listen. And it's that meekness and humility that allows someone to start to ascend out of the depths of spiritual poverty.
the poverty of spirit and start to be filled and comforted and all of those next steps along the way in the beatitudinal ascension. It's no different. You could overlap the Beatitudes right on top of this vision in DNC 76, where one of them gives you kind of a physical description of kingdoms and who goes there. The other one gives you kind of the emotional, psychological vision of who's going through what and how they might ascend, and that, that being the Sermon on the Mount version. But they're the same. All these, asc these ascensions, they start at the bottom, and they, they show you the way to climb out of them. Well, it's interesting because they actually start at the top and they, they go down, right? Mm. That, that going down is such an important part. But you make a really good point because once we map the two together, we can see the possibility not of going somewhere. Again, this idea of a metaphysical place that you're going to, to go according to who you are, but rather that who you are and where you are are really one and the same thing, which is why that's the first question of contemplation, Riley, right? This question, where am I? Yeah, and what that brings to mind for me is Jesus always showed you the present reality. You know, when, when you're in the depths, he says, well, the kingdom of God is within you. It's, it's right there. You might think you are spiritually bankrupt right now, that you are poor in spirit, that you have nothing and you're in hell. But guess what? Kingdom of God is within. So the potentiality is always the reality. All you have to do is realize it. It's awareness. It's it's actually that having that contemplative mindset Period. and being aware of what's already there. Once you become aware of it and respond to it, then you start to climb out. When you say that's what hearing is, yeah, that's yeah, becoming aware. Yeah, it's listening, hearing, seeing, experiencing, having that, catching that vision of everything new, seeing things in a new way. That's repentance, by the way. That's what repentance means, just seeing things in, an, in a new way. Mm -hmm. So we tend to take what happened in John chapter 5 and in DNC 76 and the models that have been constructed there, and we immediately literalize it. And we say, okay, well, that's referring to a specific kingdom, and here's how you get to that kingdom. And I'm not going to discount any of that. What I'm saying is there's another way to look at it. Right. There is the there is the figurative in the moment now way of looking at it that is every bit as applicable to us more so in my opinion, and and that is to help us in our present moment realize the present reality within each of us that kingdom of God is within that the spark of divinity is within that we're children of God. Once we come to that realization and awareness of what objective reality is, not what not what our lens and filters have caused us to understand about what we think about reality, but the true present reality within us that, again, we're children of God, that the kingdom of God is within, and that we have this, this massive potentiality. It's coming to an awareness of that that makes the potentiality the reality. Yeah, because of what you said, you know, it's, it may be that the metaphysical epistemological distinction is better than the literal figurative one. I think everything you just said is literally true about our objective reality, as you called it. Our objective reality is we are gods. Ye are gods, it says in Psalm 82. It's quoted by Jesus in John 10 when he's called out for, for blasphemy, uh, for saying he's the son of God. We are the kingdom of God is within us. God is always with us. You know, the footprints in the sand idea that, you know, even when you don't see him, he's there. He's the one carrying you. What doesn't, doesn't Emmanuel mean God with us? God with us. Yes, God is always with us. So we're not always aware, though. And so he's always knocking. But do we hear him knocking? And do we open our hearts and find him within? Not let him in. There's an image for you, right? Open our hearts and, and see within ourselves the reality of who we are and who he is, and how, as he said, the Father and I are one. So there's a corollary to this discussion, and it, and it involves judgment. And we've, we've made judgment this process where people are assigned externally to this kingdom or that kingdom or that kingdom, and it's a one-time event, and Christ is the ultimate judge, and, 
and the judge says, you go here and you go there. You're on the left hand. You're on the right hand. You're a goat. You're a sheep, whatever. Especially in this context. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's used a lot. And let me, let me suggest that there's another way of reading that as well, too. If Christ is the ultimate judge and he possesses within himself judgment, what is someone who is, what, how would you describe someone who is very discerning and has a deep understanding of things? They have good judgment. This is how I would like to just describe the, what judgment means in this context. Someone who has perfect understanding of the present reality that God is with them is someone who possesses good judgment. And what does someone with good judgment do? They make good decisions. What do good decisions represent? That's, that's the excellent proper use of moral agency. And what is the natural result of using our agency the right way, in the way that God would intend? And I'm not talking about consequentialism. I'm talking about just the process of doing the right thing for the right reason. I love that, Riley. You know, I can dovetail, I think, the here and now versus later, then, and the metaphysical later and the epistemological now together at this point with what you just said. Because even if we believe uh, that there is this later metaphysical reality, even if that's the case, it all starts here and now with this epistemological realization. Because you took us from the realization through the actions that come from that discernment. When I've discerned correctly reality, when I've correctly discerned reality, and I see myself for who I am, and I, my actions come out of that, right? If they come from grace, then all of a sudden I'm good, and I can qualify for that other sense of that other way of reading this. So regardless, this is where it begins. It begins here and now with a realization of what is already always true of who and what we are. Maybe the greatest thing about Christ and maybe what makes him the Christ is this eternal understanding about what was presently real for him, that he was a son of God. Maybe that's what makes him the Christ. Because I think about the the great intercessory prayer from John chapter 17, he's pleading with the Father for the Father's influence within his children to make them one with him as he is with the Father. He's essentially saying the potential is within all of them already. I just want them to be aware of it. More than anything, my greatest prayer, Father, is that they can be one as we are one. And, and all it is, is just awareness. Just wake up to it. And when you wake up to it, that present reality becomes your objective reality. And at that point, if you were celestial, now you're terrestrial. You may have, with that kind of realization, as you described, you may be celestial at this point. But the point is that with these awakenings, with the awakenings that occur within us, we rise by degree, line upon line, precept upon precept, and perhaps from kingdom to kingdom or from glory to glory, with more, with further light and truth added, we ascend to God. When, when, Aesop, when Aesop gives a fable about tortoise and hare or whatever lesson, it's not, it's not the literal thing you're trying to copy. It's, you're trying to internalize the message that he's given us, right? The principle. The principle. In many ways, scriptures and these models for you know, kingdoms and glories and all that stuff. It's meant to paint a picture for us that we can derive some kind of moral from, some way of living that is is more satisfying for us. And in many ways, if we start looking at the degrees of glory as sort of not a fable in the sense that it's not real, but a fable in the sense that it has a lesson for us that we can apply today, if we start doing that, the question I would ask you is, how would that change your life? How would that change your actions? What, what would you do differently knowing that you can progress or ascend through these kingdoms of glory starting right now and not have to wait for some future judgment? Instead, you get to be, through your awareness, that judge 
who makes better decisions, who discerns the best way to go based on that present reality that you are, you are, you have God within you, that the kingdom is within you. The potentiality is already there. How would that change your, your course of living? And that's with Christ as your model. We say Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. Well, yes. What, who and what he is, that, that path that he follows is the path that we have to follow. And by the way, he says that he never saw any, he never did anything save he saw the Father do it. He's following in the same path. The path has been laid before us. All we have to do is follow. We have to see Christ as our model, one to follow. It, it, it just brings a much more, again, here and now idea or presence or reality to what it means for Jesus to be the Christ and for Jesus to be the way, the truth, and the life. Yeah. Yeah. I love, I love that phrase, the way, the truth, and the life, because it really points out that what he's doing is a model. It's not to make of Christ an idol. It's to make of him the, the supreme archetypal example of, of what you can do. Follow me. Take up your cross. Follow me. That invitation to come and follow me is an invitation to become one of his disciples. And the disciple has the potential. You know, the student can become the master. And we can, we can become the master of that same awareness that he had. Isn't that the point of discipleship? Isn't that what you want for your disciples and your is. acolytes? To become yes. everything you are and more? Who's going to be the next master? Again, Jesus is following in God's footsteps. We're to follow in his footsteps. Perhaps others will follow in ours. When we say that Christ's salvation is universal, that's not negated by anything I'm saying. Well, we may have to do everything. That there's he does. Jesus, the person, yes. and there's Christ. Yes, exactly. Or the Messiah person, which is the person that has the perfect understanding of who he is, his eternal inheritance as a child of God. And we're asked to be Christ's saviors on Mount Zion. Christ is bigger than Jesus. Jesus is the Christ, and Christ is bigger than Jesus. You know, I can think of one example, Riley. I, I mentioned this pre-recording. For, for those who have seen, for those who haven't seen Hacksaw Ridge, it's the story of Private Desmond Doss, who uh, was committed to nonviolence according to his own experience uh, of violence as a child. And he doesn't want to then shoulder a rifle in serving in the military, but he does want to serve his country. He has that sense of God, family, country, duty, that kind of American idea. And so he goes off to World War II. And on Hacksaw Ridge, which is an actual ridge, uh, on the night that he's performing his, I would call it his Gethsemane moment, right? Where he is going and, right, I don't know if you saw it, but when I, I saw when I saw Private Desmond Doss, of course, portrayed by an actor, coming toward Hacksaw Ridge, carrying one more injured fellow man, to then climb down this rope ladder that's the height of a, a cliff. How high is it? It's, it's a it's high a cliff. It's a couple hundred feet, yeah. yeah. Um, and, and he's doing this again. We've seen him do it over and over. He's doing this all night long. I saw Christ. I saw Christ in Private Desmond Doss. Yeah, and that's what Christ wants for us because the potentiality is in each of us to recognize in, in the other someone just like themselves. Yes. And want to serve them, want to do something for them. I wrote uh, just as I was going through some of the pre-show preparation for this, I wrote about this a little bit. And, and one of the things I wrote was to live in the way which represents acceptance, realization, repentance, understanding, and piercing the veil. To live in the way which is your present reality as a child of God, having life in yourself as Jesus and the Father, is to ascend from glory to glory unto the full measure of your creation, fully realized potential. The question comes to my mind, Riley, does God want for us celestial glory? And that's a rhetorical question. The answer is yes, of course he does. His work and his glory is to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man. We call immortality this resurrection of the body we call eternal life that celestial glory that's what he wants that's his work in the glory so the question then becomes is god efficacious 
Can he bring this to pass? Look, I think unless we are, and this is what we see in the sons of perdition, I think, those who are damned, to be damned means you cannot progress. Not because I damn you, therefore you're not allowed to progress, right? That God is going to say this to us. But because our our repentance is not there, meaning not that we haven't confessed something or said I'm wrong, but realized, yes, of course we have to admit Right? We have to come to the realization, step one of the st- of the 12 steps, I've got the wrong idea here. I'm doing it wrong. I'm seeing things wrong. And so if we're not willing to do that, then yes, we're damned. But as soon as we can, and this is, by the way, without, without saying one way or the other, denying the possibility of a final judgment beyond which there can no more progress be made, but just to raise a question. What would it be like if I could reach that final judgment, if I could reach the judgment bar of Christ? And we've already talked about that judgment and what it, what it could mean in a, in a new way, I think. But if I reach that point and I haven't seen so far, I haven't repented because I haven't seen things in a new way, and I would see them now that I'm standing face to face with Christ in a new way, would he then say to me, despite his work and his glory, it's everlastingly too late or something like that? I don't think so. I can't, I'm not trying to put forward the gospel according to Christopher Hurtado. On the other hand, it's very much apropos, given section 76 as our jumping off point for this conversation, to realize that in, that what Joseph Smith and Sidney Rigdon did in reading John and and in this work of translation that they were doing and having this vision was that the scriptures are a jumping off point and they're receiving more. They're receiving much, much more. And they're not even telling us all they're receiving because Joseph Smith himself said that he could have told us a hundred times more about what he saw and heard. And as a matter of fact, even in what is told, most of what is told is what is heard, not what is seen. And so there's a sense in which you and I can have this conversation, Riley, and we can be inspired. And you listening to us can also be inspired in your own way to a realization a greater realization of, of further light and truth, of ascending, of an ascent, right, from, from glory to glory to the point that you can have some openings, the kind of openings that we've had in studying this, just in reading the same verses that, that Joseph and Sidney read, and just in having this conversation, that there becomes this very real possibility of something more than we had previously realized. That's been my experience just in preparing to have this conversation and in sitting here with you having this conversation, Riley. Well, and what came out of it for Sidney and Joseph turned out to be this modality or mode of understanding the ascent, even whether it's in the present moment or at some future time, but it was it created for them a model that they then implemented to use to help a greater population start to ascend. So this this, uh, this was in 1832, and shortly after that, they start talking about Zion. And it's like, well, Zion is what? Zion's a terrestrial kingdom. Where are we now? We're in a celestial kingdom. And so they've already incorporated this model into their ways of thinking about ascent in the moment they're living right now. It's, it's a very practical thing for them. All of a sudden, they're saying, okay, we live on earth. It's, it's the devil's kingdom. He's the master here in the celestial kingdom. And we want to ascend out of it. Well, how do we do it? Well, we got to go build Zion. Well, what is Zion? Oh, no poor among us, a one heart and one mind. We're all unified together, you know. And they start to describe what that next kingdom or glory looks like. And how do we get there? Well, first of all, we're going to isolate ourselves. Then we're going to build this cooperative community and we're going to start living for each other. We're going to consecrate our belongings to this cooperative organization. And this is how we're going to start doing it. And they just created a modality for actually ascending out of the celestial kingdom and into the terrestrial. And again, you, you, this is just one of many modalities. If you look at DNC 84, which is the revelation on, on priesthood, where it talks about, uh, you know, that the priesthood was, was given to Adam and then there was this lesser priesthood and then there was a greater priesthood. And with each of these steps or levels, there comes some kind of a blessing. So, for instance, in DNC 8419, and this greater priesthood administereth the gospel and holdeth the key of the mysteries of the kingdom, even the key of knowledge of God. Therefore, the or, in the ordinances thereof, the power of godliness is manifest. And so they created this modality of priesthood 
uh, created or had it revealed mattereth not to me. All I'm saying is priesthood is another modality that allows people to ascend from deacon to teacher to priest or along the covenant path um, through the kingdoms of glory until at the end of this, uh, I think it's in 30, where is it? Nevertheless, it says that eventually you receive all that the Father hath. That's being one with the Father. Joint heirs with Christ. That's being in the celestial glory. That's having ascended from the bottom to the top. And that's just another modality. So now we've got this modality of priesthood. We've got a modality of, of Zion. And that's not it. Continued revelation allows us to continue to add to the truths we already have. So as you study DNC 76, as you study John chapter 5, as you study DNC 84, and you see the possibilities of ascension, start thinking about what's the best way for you, individually, as a unique child of God, to ascend from whatever state you're in right now, all the way up until you're one with God. That's brilliant, Riley. That's brilliant. A couple of things come to mind in response to, to what you've said. One is that not only are they, I love that they're taking action. That's the first thing. That these things are not to be read and put on the shelf and this is going to happen someday maybe. This is something where we ask, what's the next action? And we get to work. We gird up our loins, right? As it were. And we go to work in building the kingdom of God. Which is, which is an inner work. We go to work in building the Zion, which is a, a, a communitarian work, right? And we use the priesthood as a modality to help us to do that too. And we have all these ways. And as you've pointed out, we can come up with new and maybe even better ways. Because the second thing that comes to my mind is that they're not only they're going right to work and jumping in and, you know, putting their shoulder to the wheel and uh, having girded up their loins, but they are they're just doing the best that they can. They're doing the best that they can. And this isn't necessarily the one and only way to do it. We've already described multiple ways to do it that even they themselves used simultaneously. But in their way of implementing it... By the way, it, can you think of any others within the church? I well, mean, the covenant path. The covenant path, sure. The temple. Yeah. The temple is there's definitely so ascension. We've talked about that in the past. There's so many ways. There's so many modes that... That we've that have been presented to us through revelation, through inspiration, and and again that's through when I say through inspiration, we can count all of those inspired men within or without our own tradition, which have shown us ways, modalities, ways in which we can get close to God, and that's what we're looking for. We're talking about ascension to God. The point is to ascend to God, to become closer and closer to God by degree. And this is done one step at a time, and it's done through action. Again, we have our, we recorded the episode on action and contemplation. We're not here just to talk about contemplation for contemplation's sake. We're inviting you to take action, to contemplate the possibility of celestial glory here and now, of at least a Zion community here and now. And by the way, I think we do have to ascend by degree. I don't think we can jump ahead, uh, you know, skip a degree. So we've got to work on building the kingdom of God within us. We've got to work on building a Zion community. And we've got to come together. If you're not one, you're not mine. We have to come together in that community to Christ. So if I look at what the church is doing in the last couple of years, I think it fits pretty well with this idea of personal revelation and creating your own ascension modality. Um, not only was there the messaging that I mentioned earlier with the Hear Him campaign and inviting you to share your own personal way that you hear Him, because it's the hearing that causes the awareness, that causes the actions, that causes the ascension, the changes, and getting closer to God. It's but it starts with how you, how do you hear Him, and a lot of people are not only describing the way in which they connect initially with God, but they're describing what it causes within them, the changes that it causes within them. Um, And that's the ascension. And so that's pretty brilliant, actually, because it it actually is starting to individualize and personalize the gospel ideal of becoming one with God that Christ outlined in that intercessory prayer. So how do you hear him? Along that same lines with the church-supported, home-centered church, 
Again, that's a very individualized approach. As a family unit, how are we going to do this? When you look at the programs for the youth, no longer is it a step-by-step, you must read so many pages of this and you must have this, you know, scout badge or whatever. Now it's like, what is your goal? What's going to help you progress from one level to another? And why don't you pursue that? And we're here to support you in that. Everything is becoming more individualized. Now, you mentioned there was no skipping of steps, and I agree. I think one of the criticisms of the leadership of the church sometimes from from people who might be a little more cynical or or just critics in general is that they're they're kind of always talking to the lowest common denominator. They're teaching the the basics and things never get more detailed and like, oh, I I want more info than this. Let's talk about like deep spiritual matters. That's what we're here for. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. yeah, I don't know about that. <laughs> That's what we're doing here. Yeah, I mean... That's the point of this. For those who are in this conversation with us, that's our purpose, is to bring this... to bring further light and truth to our own realization, to come together to that to that knowledge. We've been told to study. We've been told to seek out of the best books. Podcasts were not mentioned in the scriptures. They did not exist at the time that they were written. To seek out of the best books to seek out of the best podcasts, why not? To to have study groups. We were told to have study groups with the new Come Follow Me program. We've been hosting, Latter-day Peace Studies has been hosting a study group. We have the podcast. We have the Come Follow Me podcast. We have the Latter-day Contemplation podcast. This is what we're doing. This is not what we're doing. Yeah, well, it is, but for for about the 50 people who pay attention to us. That, sure. That's, but, you know, but again. Self-selected. That, that's it, right? There's so many modalities. As we said before, there's many, many ways to get there and encouraging that kind of spiritual innovation so that it reaches every individual according to their own needs and desires. I see what you mean. Yeah. This isn't the way. This isn't it. No. This <laughs> we're not talking the to the way. whole this church. This is a way. This is a way. This yeah. is a way. Absolutely. Yeah. Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And Christ is bigger than Jesus, and it includes what we're doing here. To the best of our ability and, and to according to the intents of our heart is to follow Christ, to walk the path of discipleship together. You, you and I, Riley, our, lis- our, our listener perhaps, you know, you who are listening to us, in our families and in the way in which we contribute in our own communities, whether at the ward level or thinking about our neighbors who are not going to church with us, and the the circles expand outward, like Hierocles circles from the Stoics that I think we've talked mm-hmm. about before. Yeah. yeah. So we talked about this this uh, idea of judgment and another way of looking at that, and we talked a little bit about resurrection and what that might mean. There's the doctrine of Christ, and this is something that theologically within the church is spoken of quite often, and it's the very basics that are outlined in Article of Faith 4, which is, Uh, faith, repentance, baptism, and receiving the Holy Ghost. Again, another modality or way of receiving greater light and knowledge so that you can progress or ascend um, with with and through Christ to God. Can I say something about that? Yeah. Before you go further into that, because I said that we couldn't skip steps and you you agreed with me. I do think that we can work on multiple steps at the same time. Mm. Does that make sense? Well, the the church encourages this, right? I mean, there's... There's that priesthood modality. Right. There's the temple. There's that's why I mentioned it because you're going to another yes. another modality. So we can work on the we can work on building the kingdom within us. We can work on building Zion without us. We can work on multiple levels and in multiple modalities at the same time. Yeah, yeah. So what I want to get to with this is this idea of the difference between life and death. So again, we talked a little bit about what death means, the, kind of that walking dead mentality of being spiritually dead, something referred to as the second spiritual death in Helaman 14 and in the early Garden of Eden you know, uh, scene as well. That spiritual death is, is one in which you're kind of, you're bogged down by sin. So if we describe that as death, and that's a figurative death, what is a figurative life? What, what does life mean? in that same kind of vein or context. Um, and so there's all kinds of modalities for getting to that life, but and including this, this kind of basic doctrine of Christ, which is faith in Christ, repentance. <laughs> I'm, I'm slapping my hand as I go through the list. Um, 
faith, repentance, baptism, and receiving the Holy Ghost. So if you go through that modality and you are able to uh, ascend to eternal life, what does eternal life mean? What does life mean in that sort of same figurative sense that you have a spiritual death? What does a spiritual life look like? You know, if I could answer the first question, eternal life means life in Christ. Eternal is his name. Eternal life is life in Christ. But now to the second question, what is life? Well, and even to your point, that seems kind of, it's a little oblique to me. What, like, right. what is life in Christ? Because we haven't answered the question, what is life? So yeah, that's it. So you have to ask, answer the question, what is life? If we move from death to life and we have that phase change as a result of hearing him, as it said in John chapter 5, what does that look like? You've now moved from death to life. What's different for you? How are, what's, your, what's different about your walk, your approach to people? your approach to your day, what does life look like as opposed to spiritual death, that dark cloud hanging over you? Man, when I come alive, it's such a powerful experience to, because we all walk through life sometimes in this spiritually dead state. And when, when we say it's due to sin, and it is due to sin, we have to remember that, again, this is a term that is loaded with baggage. As we've said many times before, sin is an archery term, at least this, the term that's translated sin from the Greek, uh, hamartia, is this archery term, which means missing the mark. And so if repentance is seeing things in a new way, well, look, if I'm an archer and I'm trying to hit a mark that I'm not seeing correctly, whether my eyes are blurry, whether I need to rub my eyes or get some glasses which, which the gospel gives me, or whether I need to turn and face the right way because it turns out the, the, uh, the bullseye is behind me and I'm facing the wrong way and I've got to turn to God, I've got to repent, then I'm not talking about when I say I'm, I'm living in sin and therefore I'm spiritually dead, I'm not talking about being a murderer necessarily. That, that, that could bring some serious spiritual death though, couldn't it? Yeah, of course. But I'm not, I don't have to be a murderer. I don't have to be an adulterer to be living in sin. So if I'm living in sin, what I mean is I'm not seeing things in the right way. Once I see the possibility of who I really am, once I realize the kingdom of God is within me, the Father and I are one, ye are gods, all of this. And when I say realize it, of course I don't come to that full realization all at once. It's line upon line, precept upon precept. But when I get just a hint of that, just a taste of that, just a peek behind the veil, I come alive. And it shows. It shows in how I see myself. And of course, then it shows based on how I see myself and how I see my fellow man and how I interact with my fellow man. And everything is new, just as Christ promised. I think you can see this manifested in people's faces like in their countenance, in their walk, and regardless of their circumstance. This is not circumstantial. Like this, this life that we're trying to describe is not circumstantial. People can be living a true life, being totally alive to their present reality that God and his kingdom is within them, whether they are dirt poor at subsistence level, supporting children in a village somewhere in you know rural Asia, or be living high on the hog like many of us do in this country. You can have it in any situation. Although living high on the hog sometimes gets in the way because it clouds our vision. Look, I mean, if we're looking at, uh, if we have the leisure to sit around and look at Facebook all day, that's going to cloud our vision, right? If we're out there working for subsistence and we don't have time for that, that's going to keep us in touch with, well, now that I put it that way, let's think of the most basic sense of work, of working the ground, right? The soil. I mean, that's where, that's where the Bible opens up, right? With soil, with blood, with toil here and now. It keeps us, it keeps us present, right? There, there's a reason for that. I mention that because I think the, the idea of the gospel of prosperity can be a wrong-headed idea. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I guess what I want to point to is that life does not necessarily mean constant happiness and enjoyment. Right. So what does living, it's almost intangible, isn't it? It's almost like tough to describe, but you know it when you see it or hear it 
when you experience it for yourself. So wait, rather, you're saying that we can't actually tell people on the podcast any more than Sidney Rigdon and Joseph Smith could actually write in words (laughs) what it looks like? Maybe not. Even though they experienced it, even though we're experiencing it? No, we can't. It's ineffable. But we've all experienced it. You know, I think we can point to it. And I think that's what Joseph Smith and Sidney Rigdon said they were doing. They tell us in Section 76 that whatever they're writing, it's almost like reading Plato's seventh letter. You read everything of what Plato wrote, and at the end, you get the seventh letter, and he said, whatever you read before, that's not my doctrine. And these guys, they have this vision, and they tell us all about what they hear and see, or at least one hundredth part of it, should we say, according to what Joseph Smith said. And yet, in the end, they say, all we could do is really kind of point to it. So to point to it, there are those moments when everything seems right with the world. And by the way, things could be really wrong at the time in some sense, right? We have this sense of, well, things are good or bad. We've mentioned before this Chinese farmer, um, what is it called? Uh, a parable, right? Mm-hmm. The, Chinese, the, the, farmer, uh, the Chinese farmer parable. We've mentioned before this Chinese farmer parable where there's a Chinese farmer whose horse runs away and his neighbors come to say, oh, that's terrible that your horse ran away. And he says, maybe. And the next day, the horse comes back with seven more horses. Now he has eight. And they say, that's great. And he says, maybe. The next day, his son is trying to break one of the horses, falls and breaks his own leg. And they say, oh, that's terrible. And he says, maybe. Maybe. And now comes the army to conscript all able-bodied young men. And his son can't go off to fight and die. And they say, oh, isn't that great? What luck. He says, maybe. So we think of things as for or against us. And it may be that things just are. And our view of reality, our, our realization of our godlike nature, in which I think for God, in the end, everything is okay with the world. You know? So that, that view gives us an experience of reality that is what I would call living. And that's, that's contemplative in the sense that we're not, we're not married to the consequences. We're not consequentialists. You see things as they are, and your awareness of them is such that you accept. And this is a very Eastern idea about the world, is this idea of acceptance. that And, and somewhat Stoic as well. You just, things are what they are. You accept it for what it is. And you do the best with whatever the circumstances are. Um, but this isn't foreign to us either, right? We have this idea. Sometimes what happens when we take this comparative religious approach, Riley, that you and I have taken and that we've brought to, to you, our audience, is this idea that, again, it's seeing things in a new way. We can get a perspective because Jesus and the Buddha, they taught very many of the same things if not all the same things. And there are even ways that we could read the Bhagavad Gita and think of Krishna as an incarnation of Christ, something like that, right? If we take a comparative approach. But what it, but the way that we usually talk about this is we say that all things will work together for our good. That's not that different from what from what the Buddha was saying, right? So yeah, this, it's our our approach and our way of thinking is informed by these other traditions that we have studied to our benefit, but my experience, Riley, has been that I've understood my own tradition better by taking that approach. How about you? Yeah, absolutely. And maybe maybe you're right. There is no way for us to paint the perfect picture of what it means to truly live and to have this sense of life that is different from the death that we've awakened from as we've become aware of the present realities within us. And in that vein and along those in that spirit, let me put it this way, it's, it's possibly the reason why Joseph said what he said within DNC 76. He, he's described Jesus and the Father in physical forms during the first vision. He described the great joy that overcame him when he's received visions like this one. And yet the most important thing that he can say about him is the thing last of all that he wants to say. This is where we're going to close to? This is where we're going to close. <laughs> yeah, I love it. Is right there in DNC 22. He says, And now, after the many testimonies which have been given of him, this is the testimony last of all which we give of him, that he lives! Exclamation point. That he lives. 
that, that doesn't seem all that amazing until you understand how important it is to have life within you. As he said earlier, life within the Father, he has that within himself. Christ, he has life within himself. He has that full and present awareness of the reality of divinity within himself. And it's the same thing that we have. And that's the same thing that he wants for us, is for us to live. Regardless of circumstances or consequences, to have life. And when you have life, you have it eternally. There's nothing that can take it away. Is there anything you want to finish with, Chris? I'd like to close by reading that same verse again, Riley. And now, after the many testimonies which have been given of him, this is the testimony, last of all, which we give of him, that he lives. I echo that testimony. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm Christopher Hurtado. And I'm Riley Risto. Have a great week. Bye.